Welcome to Global Perspectives and following on from our last episode where we looked at stagflation risks with our REIT team. Today, we'll look at stagflation and some other key macro topics through the eyes of our high yield investors. And to help with that, Mappy, we're doing another episode with Seth Meyer and Tom Ross. Seth is based here in Denver with me and Tom's in London. And they're both portfolio managers covering high yield and investment grade across quite a few of our Janice Henderson strategies. So, all right, guys, thanks for braving another episode with me. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having us. Yeah, and I, I think the best place to start is is we've got slowing growth, inflation, rising rates. You think all that would spell disaster for high yield markets, but amazingly, high yields looking better year to date than almost any other fixed income benchmark. So maybe Tom, could you start and just catch us up on how high yield performance is stacking up and and why it's outperforming so many other fixed income benchmarks this year? Yeah. So. Look, high yielders, I mean, total returns have been have been poor overall. But as you say, when you compare it to other asset classes, it's not too bad. Look, partly, it's a lower duration asset class anyway. Um, you know, typically sort of three to four years. Obviously, the, the big underperforming part of fixed income has really been the duration element. Um, so that lower duration has definitely helped. Maybe not to the same extent as loan markets and floating rate markets. But again, it has really sort of dampened that um, that downside vol. And in fact, it, but it still has mostly been that duration that's caused most of that underperformance. You know, so depending on what index you're looking at, you know, sort of five and a half percent negative total returns for, let's say, global high yield in the first quarter. You know, only about one point four percent of that was actually from from the spread return. The rest of it was from duration. So I guess why is that in an environment where we are talking about, you know, is there going to be a recession next year? You know, this would normally be the time where everyone would just be panicking out of high yield. I think the difference is the only real investors that were, I guess, overextended into the high yield market were investment grade, ag funds, sort of total return funds that saw high yield as an opportunity over the last handful of many years. And they would pile into, you know, the, the double B part of the market. And most of that unwound as they got concerned about central banks changing their tune in Q1 of this year. But in fact, most high yield investors haven't really been overly invested. Most institutional investors, because overall yields have been fairly low, haven't really been invested. So there haven't been that many people selling, I guess, what we sort of call the traditional high yield of sort of, you know, single Bs and, and triple Cs. And that's meant that the market hasn't really underperformed to the extent we might have expected. Yeah. And if I can add uh, just a couple points, I think high yield is an asset class that historically has performed well in Fed hiking cycles. And in inflationary periods, and and I I'm not that surprised to see high yield outperforming again. The key risk in in high yield, as Tom was alluding to, really is spread risk. And um, at the onset of of 2022, I don't think many people actually had recession sort of forecasted in their in their crystal ball. It still looked like um, things were going to be just fine as in terms of growth. As we've progressed, um, you know, we've had other situations, geopolitical situations arise that that weren't on people's radar um, four months ago. And that's created more of an issue of inflationary pressures that are getting even more out of hand uh, and and perhaps even a, a significantly more uh, aggressive Fed than many were thinking just three or four months ago. So I think pulling forward your recession expectations is seems reasonable here. Um, but let's, let's remember the Fed has moved once so far and the markets have really corrected to a more aggressive Fed stance. 
um, just looking at the curve itself, right? You look at the two-year moving from 30 basis points to 250 basis points in a very, very short period of time. That's already tightened financial condition. So the question going forward for high yield really is how we're going to balance the outlook of economic environment, recession probabilities, and how that plays into spreads. And you, you just said in, in during inflation, high yield can outperform. So if you've got rising rates and inflation and high yields a fixed rate asset class, how does that play out? Like how does inflation not affect high yield as much? Or, or how does the kind of investing playbook change in an inflationary environment for high yield? I mean, generally speaking, yeah, you have fixed rate debt that you're holding. The thing to remember is you already are being offered a significant spread advantage over um, the given treasury that you're being compared against. And that spread advantage usually compresses as Fed is raising rates or there's inflationary pressures on the curve, predominantly because when those things are usually happening, economic growth is usually just fine. So it's usually more of a function of the fact that economies are doing okay in periods where rising rates and inflation are both problems. And that actually is what what lends itself to perform well. Fundamentally, if you look you know deeper into the individual companies, you're talking about growing cash flows, the ability to delever because economies are doing fine. And that's usually the buffer that that high yield offers. All right. You made the point that some core funds in high yield were essentially tourists that sold pretty quickly during the volatility year to date. So with you guys as a natives or or locals or lifers in the high yield space with those tourists running out, uh, what kind of dislocations or opportunities are you seeing that are are unique because of that event? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we can talk specifically about what we're seeing in the double B space, which has predominantly been the area that um, the the tourist is, as you are you're describing, left. And and the double B part of the market is really the highest quality part of the high yield market. Double Bs started the year under actually pretty significant pressure and underperformed their triple C counterparts as as the non-natural buyers were exiting the high yield space. And um, those asset classes are generally more influenced by the direction of rates than, than a triple C bond may be. So when you think about what's happened in the double B space, the interesting part has been how low the abs- absolute dollar prices are becoming. Longer duration double B credit has an average dollar price in the 90s right now, low 90s which is really attractive when you think about a seven or eight year piece of paper and you know a point or two from your total return will be just that bond accreting back to par. So we're getting some unique opportunities, I think, today to, be, to take advantage of um, higher quality companies at what we view to be pretty cheap valuations. And, and I think that that's been sort of the, the most direct outcome of that view of the, the tourists leaving the high yield space. Um, I'm sure I'm sure Tom has has other angles on it as well, but that's that's the most obvious part for me. Yeah, I guess as well, the investment from those non-native high yield investors as well has typically been through things like ETFs. And obviously that is quite sort of indiscriminate in how that is investing within our market. Um, so as soon as you have, I guess, anything that isn't considering things solely from the bottom up, which is how we tend to do things, um, that's just going to provide those opportunities because, you know, the most selling is based upon which names are largest within an ETF, um, as opposed to, you know, based on whether it's a, you know, has a better credit outlook, um, versus any other company. So it's certainly, provides us with this great opportunity to try and pick 
those companies that we believe from a fundamental perspective or an ESG perspective or whatever it might be that looks more attractive um, as opposed to just what's dictated to by benchmarks and ETFs. Okay. So it seems some good reasons for optimism and some opportunities there with some of those dislocations, some of those um, flows I've created. And Seth, you mentioned earlier that the, the rising rates, it, it could be good and inflation could be good if it's a sign of a healthy economy. But there's, of course, a lot more talk about recession risk in the U.S. this year or next year. So I'm curious, are you guys also concerned about a recession or, or not and why? And then in a recession kind of environment, like how does the high yield investment decision process change? Like what types of sectors and how does security selection change in a recession environment? It depends. It depends very much what the recession is going to look like. Obviously, if if we simply have a very short and shallow, possibly even like a technical recession, um, in terms of you know the the figures make it a recession, but the growth is not all that bad, um, then that's probably you know that's that's really not going to be something that's going to be too worried about. It it will probably associate itself with obviously wider than usual uh, spreads but obviously a, a lot of that is is potentially already priced in certainly when we start thinking a year out um, but if we do have a really deep and long recession which is not our base case but I think we have to acknowledge is a um, is a risk scenario that has that does have a probability attached to it then obviously that's when you will see more stress within high yield. Um, it will lead to lower prices, especially of those lower rated triple C's, more cyclical credits. And that will ultimately lead through to, um, you know, a higher default rate as well. So it depends very much what it looks like. I guess what one of the things we're trying is you mentioned about sectors there and sectors is it, it's so interesting at the moment because typically at the moment, this sort of later cycle behavior, you'd be, getting severely underweight through, you know, durable goods and things like that. And look, we have reduced risk in, in areas like, um, in areas like autos. But it's interesting when you've got auto manufacturing that is, you know, production levels that are similar to that of what we had, you know, for many companies back in the global financial crisis, you know, how much, how much lower can it go in terms of the volumes? Yes, their ability to, you know, get the margins on those vehicles is going to be lower, but it's not like we've had some, amazing time where you know production volumes have been through the roof there's you know cars everywhere that you know um everyone's all got a new car already like no one's been able to buy a car for ages now does that make us positive on the auto sector well no not necessarily but it also doesn't mean we want to get super bad up either so it's almost not as simple as just saying cyclical or not durable goods or not it's really thinking about each specific market and trying to decipher exactly how that sector is going to play out in the various scenarios that we might have coming up in the next 12 to 18 months. Okay, so we're talking about some of the optimism in the face of inflation, and then some optimism around those unique opportunities in the double B space, given some of the outflows and selling that you saw this year to date, but it's a bond conversation, so gotta stay a little bit more negative. So past, I guess, recession risk, any other red flags you've seen in the high yield markets that are worrying you guys thinking about the rest of the year? So from the perspective of just corporate health, and I think one of the reasons that our base case isn't for a, a severe type drawdown or recession um, has just been the, the strength of, of balance sheets um, with corporations worldwide. Re remembering back to how dark the days were in March 2020, um, many, many corporations around the world who had access to capital utilized that ability to access capital and built um, war chests of of cash, frankly, just just because of the concern of how long 
how difficult all of the things that we were all talking about what was going on during that period. Subsequent to that um, debt funding in, in March and, and over the next, call it 18, 24 months, the the corporations, not only cash flows, but their ability to delever over the past um, 18 months has been quite tremendous. And is in many cases, in, in the investment grade category or the high yield category, you're talking about leverage ratios. So, you know, cash flow to the total debt that they have on their balance sheet lower than we were going into COVID and interest rate, interest coverage ratios significantly higher because they were able to issue at such low, low coupons. So corporate credit risk right now, when you look at default rates or distress ratios or traditional credit metrics, they look phenomenal. Um, and it's one of the key reasons that we think corporate credit spreads are holding in so well, despite the fact that we've gotten this view that recession might be being pulled forward. So you think about that from the corporate perspective, and then you compare it versus the consumer side, particularly in the United States, and it, it's more acute here because of the stimulus packages that were directly um, targeted on the consumer side. But consumer balance sheets, so if you look at net worth um, compared to total debt, unemployment ratios, um, look at uh, wage growth, all of these other things you're thinking, they, they look really, really positive. So it's hard to paint a picture where we see a, a significant drawdown um, because there's just not an area that we see that there are completely offside excesses. Um, I, I don't know, maybe maybe U.S. housing is an area of the market that needs to slow and pricing is a little out of control. Autos, those will be self-correcting as we bring more, more supply online. But, you know, it's, it's what the Fed is doing is trying to cool the areas of the market that actually are seem to be a little overheated right now, like housing. And higher rates will certainly do that with mortgage rates now piercing through 5% for a 30-year fixed rate. That's, that's, gonna be, that's going to slow the market. There's no doubt about that. There aren't enough cash buyers in America to offset sort of that slowdown. So it's hard for me to get completely bearish, um, even though we've had a really tough start to the year across the entire fixed income landscape. As the world has now repriced um, a world of easy money, with one a little a little bit more tighter, and and I think this is all normal processes. It's happened significantly quicker than most process before. If, if you think about the Fed rate hiking cycles of of the early two thousands of a quarter every every meeting, we're on a an accelerated pace of those of those tightening. But you know that it, that that has to be compared to the strength of the underlying economies and. The reason they feel the need to do it isn't just because of the inflation problem. It's because the economies they think can handle it. So I don't have the uh, the the one one item that is really scaring me or the situation where um, things dramatically changed other than, you know, the geo geopolitical things that are happening that are very, very hard to forecast. Right now, um, underlying health of corporates and consumer looks very, very good to us as we look forward. Tom, anything you're losing sleep over? No, uh, the only point I probably would mention, we, we did see a pickup in M&A. It, it never really got the ability to, I get, too ahead of itself in terms of the excesses that we might have seen prior to global financial crisis, etc. But I guess we've been more selective in some of the new issues and some of the M&A deals that have been coming through. I, we, we, you know, we, we have bought a lower proportion of those new financing deals than we might have done in the past, just because there was a little bit of that sort of late cycle M&A behavior coming through. So again, it was something we were aware of. But again, I don't want to overstate it as, as an enormous risk, because it's 
the weakness we've now seen has sort of then nipped that in the bud before it came a potentially bigger issue, which I think it might have done had we've had another sort of six to 12 months of, of that type of bull market. Okay, got it. So base case, nothing too worrisome in the immediate horizon. But if you did kind of push things into some kind of, I don't know, sell off or even crisis scenario, like going back to 2020, we had in both US and Europe, like central bank backstops for credit, both of which correct me if I'm wrong, but I think are totally unprecedented, you know, whether or not they actually kind of activated that spending and buying in the credit markets, it, it does create this moral hazard of, of sorts, I'd assume. I mean, as as high yield as credit investors, and you start thinking outside your base case, or is that kind of sell off? Like, is moral hazard a, a question, you know, for investors in the markets? Like, what do those backstops mean when you do start thinking about these these tail risk scenarios? One one thing to remember, right? The the Fed is not going to be stationary or static, and and they they are very focused on rolling inflation in in the United States. No doubt about that. They're not going to stop until they start seeing core CPI in their their measure PCE start to decline to levels that they're comfortable with. I do not believe, and and here's the the idea that inflation could power through a significant slowdown caused by a recession seems illogical to me and much many of the issues we're dealing with with supply chains or just using autos and as an example if you eliminate the demand the supply quickly catches up and you have no problem as far as pricing at that point we start to see kind of the air being let out of the balloon if you will from the inflation perspective so i think when you think about the fed and their willingness to participate in markets outside of their sort of um, long-term norm 2020 was a unique situation where they were getting really involved in credit markets that I don't view as a a normal path forward for the Fed unless they believe that corporations will not have access to capital. Fundamentally, what they were doing in March was just to make sure, March of 2020, just to make sure that companies had access to capital in the event that this was going to be a very long drawn out situation where we had to have corporations shut down for very long periods of time. So it made logical sense for them to provide some support to to markets where financing was the key. And and really, when you think about what companies needed in March of April of 2020, it was nothing but cash. And it was to continue to pay bills. It was to continue to pay rent. It was all of the things that that we all know. And now we look back on it and say, well, the period was relatively short. Did they need to be as supportive? I don't know, but hindsight is 2020. As you look forward, yeah, the moral hazard is there that that perhaps they would get more involved into markets that, that aren't natural to them. And their willingness to do it before kind of gives investors the comfort that they'll do it again. We would be, I, I, would, I would think in order to see where a, a Fed situation is back in supporting markets, um, we would need to see a significant move in markets for them to, to change their current path. So, yeah, it's always a, it's something that, that you're thinking about, um, particularly if there's a significant drawdown at some point. But we, we have to remember how unique March 2020 was and what they were actually trying to accomplish. And that was to keep liquidity flowing. So is that our path going forward? Uh, it seems unlikely, but they've shown their hand once. So they would probably, if they had to, do it again. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Go ahead, Tom. Well, I was going to say from the ECB perspective, because if we think about where most of those corporate purchases have happened, it's been European investment grade. That's been the sort of the, the, the big area, I say, the exuberance of central bank almost overreach in terms of their participation within the market. Um, and obviously they have, you know, an enormous 
you know, over 300 billion worth of corporate bonds on their, um, on their balance sheet. Obviously, that would be the risk that that, you know, if that starts to unwind, obviously, they're still purchasing and they will still reinvest those purchases for some time. But I guess the big risk is if anything like that unwound. I still remember back in 2015, where you had a period where European investment grade was the weakest part of all credit markets. You had sellers from funds. You had a huge amount of supply, especially from US um, companies issuing into euros. And you had this sort of total imbalance within the market. The really interesting was, whilst that caused, I guess, weakness in other areas of the market as well, it was fairly acute to European investment grade. And yes, if that weakness comes through, then obviously that that crowding out effect from high yield that will, will come through as well. But in fact, high yield remained okay. In fact, even liquidity within high yield remained okay and was, for a long period of time, was actually better than liquidity you had within European investment grade. So I think it is fairly specific to that. Quite honestly, I don't really expect the ECB to, to back away a huge amount. I can't imagine they're going to end up being anywhere near as, as sort of hawkish as, as the Fed would be, just because we never really have amazing growth within uh, within Europe. So it, it's something we have to consider. I, I think you're absolutely right that the idea of the, the sort of the Fed put and, the, and that moral health, it, it's further away than it probably ever has been before. But again, I think markets have already priced that into a larger extent and, and everyone is aware and, and if anything, probably overly overly scared about, about the situation. Okay, so I think we did pretty good here. We kind of distilled rate hikes and duration and recessions and geopolitics and inflation into what's, a, I think, a reasonably optimistic baseline from you guys. So maybe if you could close it out, just taking the rest of the year, looking forward, like what does it feel like? as the balance of the year as a high yield investor? Like what catalysts are you looking for? What are the return drivers? Is it just security selection? Any big macro events, you know, Fed news you're waiting on? Or, or how would you describe the rest of the year as investors looking forward? I think investors in the high yield asset class are now be, being given an opportunity to actually achieve the name of the portfolio itself, which is high yield. It's been a while since we've been afforded yields where they are right now, which provides a nice cushion as we look forward. I think the key to markets, as as I look forward over the next three to six months, and I, I think Tom would agree with me, is really how the Fed bends this curve of of inflation in the U.S. And an awful lot is priced into the market. You have to remember the market is a discounting mechanism that's already moved to where the Fed is going to be 12 or 18 months from now. We've already priced a lot of that in. So the question now is, does the Fed meet or or not those expectations that have already been priced in? If for some reason we see inflation come off hotter or faster than than we would expect, that could be a really accretive um, position for risk assets as the market already priced in a very uh, restrictive Fed and perhaps they don't need to be as accommodative or as restrictive, I'm sorry. When you look the opposite side of it, you know, a lot of restrictions already been priced in. What if what if the situation is they cannot bend the inflation curve and we end up um, accelerating to the back half of this year, which would seem unlikely, but you know, you have to think of all scenarios that would would not be a great risk-taking environment. So I, I think fundamentally companies are going to struggle with higher costs. Um, a lot of that has certainly been priced into the way we're thinking about these the earnings trajectory of businesses looking forward. I think the key question really is more about what the central bank does, how they're able to navigate this and, and whether or not they can, you know, do the, uh, the, the famous saying of a soft landing versus a hard landing. And, and I think that that'll be the tall tale sign of how 2022 shakes out in the back half. 
And I'd say in that environment where so many things are changing, it feels like the cycle is going through such a big change. The ability for companies that have been used to an environment of, of, of low rates and of easy money, et cetera, how those companies respond to that and the differences you have, not just within different sectors, across sectors when you start to consider themes like inflation, cost price inflation, um, you know, energy input costs, all of these different themes that are coming through and ESG as well, and how investors are now focusing on that even more than ever, how the stranded assets, you know, really, really cope with, with lower financing demand. All of that leads through to security selection and the ability for those companies to see through this changing time and to be able to adapt through, uh, through this, through this changing period. Okay, that's a pretty loaded answer, but maybe that's just some good fodder for the, the next episode. I think we covered plenty already. So thank you guys. Super helpful. Great. Thanks, Adam. And thanks to our listeners for joining. And if you like the show, please like or comment. And if you'd like to hear more from Janice Henderson, you can find more Global Perspectives episodes on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you listen. And of course, check out the insights section of the Janice Henderson website. is a short-form term for the Bloomberg U.S. Aggregate Index, LBUSTRUU, that tracks U.S. investment-grade debt. Accretion to par, bonds are usually redeemed at par value when they mature. For example, if they are issued at $100, they should pay back $100 par when redeemed at maturity. A bond trading below $100, say at $90, will typically begin to rise in price as it gets closer to maturity. This is called the pull or accretion to par. Basis point or BP equals one one-hundredth of a percentage point. 1 BP equals 0.01%, 100 BPS equals 1%. Coupon, the annual or semi-annual payment, of interest, to bondholders. Default rate, a default is the failure of a debtor, such as a bond issuer, to pay interest or to return an original amount loaned when due. The default rate is a measure of defaults over a set period as a proportion of debt originally issued. Duration measures a bond price's sensitivity to changes in interest rates. The longer a bond's duration, the higher its sensitivity to changes in interest rates and vice versa. Credit spread is the difference in yield between securities with similar maturity but different credit quality. Widening spreads generally indicate deteriorating creditworthiness of corporate borrowers, and narrowing indicate improving. Distress ratio, normally described as the percentage of high-yield bonds trading with a spread greater than 1,000 basis points over U.S. Treasuries. High-yield tourists, investors who do not typically invest in high-yield but are temporarily attracted by a grab for yield. Leverage, a measure of indebtedness of a borrower. For a company this is often expressed as earnings or cash flow divided by total debt on the company's balance sheet. High-yield or junk bonds involve a greater risk of default and price volatility and can experience sudden and sharp price swings. Inflation, the annual rate of change in prices, typically expressed as a percentage rate. The Consumer Price Index, CPI, and PCE Personal Consumption Expenditures, PCE, are both measures of inflation. Interest coverage, a measure of how easily a company can pay interest on its outstanding debt. The interest coverage ratio is calculated by dividing a company's earnings before interest and taxes by its interest expense during a given period. Interest rate risk, the risk that can arise for fixed income investors from fluctuating interest rates. As interest rates rise, the existing yields on fixed rate bonds become relatively less attractive so bond prices fall. Investment grade, a bond typically issued by governments or companies perceived to have a relatively low risk of defaulting on their payments. 
The higher quality of these bonds is reflected in their higher credit ratings. Stagflation, an economic environment where inflation is above average but economic growth is below average or even negative. Volatility measures risk using the dispersion of returns for a given investment. Yield, the level of income on a security, typically expressed as a percentage rate. At its most simple for a bond this is calculated as the annual coupon payment divided by the current bond price. Consumer Price Index, CPI, is an unmanaged index representing the rate of inflation of the U.S. consumer prices as determined by the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics. Personal Consumption Expenditures, PCE, is the value of the goods and services purchased by, or on behalf of, U.S. residents. At the national level, the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis, BEA, publishes annual, quarterly, and monthly estimates of consumer spending. The views presented are as of the date published. They are for information purposes only and should not be used or construed as investment, legal or tax advice or as an offer to sell, a solicitation of an offer to buy, or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any security, investment strategy or market sector. Nothing in this material shall be deemed to be a direct or indirect provision of investment management services specific to any client requirements. Opinions and examples are meant as an illustration of broader themes, are not an indication of trading intent, are subject to change and may not reflect the views of others in the organization. It is not intended to indicate or imply that any illustration or example mentioned is now or was ever held in any portfolio. No forecasts can be guaranteed and there is no guarantee that the information supplied is complete or timely, nor are there any warranties with regard to the results obtained from its use. Janus Henderson Investors is the source of data unless otherwise indicated, and has reasonable belief to rely on information and data sourced from third parties. Past performance does not predict future returns. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal and fluctuation of value. Not all products or services are available in all jurisdictions. This material or information contained in it may be restricted by law, may not be reproduced or referred to without express written permission or used in any jurisdiction or circumstance in which its use would be unlawful. Janice Henderson is not responsible for any unlawful distribution of this material to any third parties, in whole or in part. The contents of this material have not been approved or endorsed by any regulatory agency. Janice Henderson Investors is the name under which investment products and services are provided by the entities identified in the following jurisdictions. A. Europe by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, Registration Number 3594615, Janice Henderson Investors UK Limited, Registration Number 906355, Janice Henderson Fund Management UK Limited, Registration Number 2678531, Henderson Equity Partners Limited, Registration Number 2606646. Each registered in England and Wales at 201 Bishopsgate, London EC2M3AE and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, and Henderson Management SA, registration number B22848 at 2 Rue de Bitburg, L1273, Luxembourg and regulated by the Commission de Surveillance du Secteur Financier. B, the US by SEC registered investment advisors that are subsidiaries of Janice Henderson Group PLC. C, Canada through Janice Henderson Investors US LLC only to institutional investors in certain jurisdictions. D, Singapore by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore, Limited. Company registration number 199700782N. This advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by Monetary Authority of Singapore, e. Hong Kong by Janice Henderson Investors Hong Kong Limited. This material has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, F. Taiwan ROC by Janice Henderson Investors Taiwan Limited, independently operated, Suite 45A1, Taipei 101 Tower, Number 7, Section 5, Sinyi Road, Taipei, 110. Telephone, 02810111001. Approved size license number 023, issued in 2018 by Financial Supervisory Commission. G, South Korea by Janice Henderson Investors, Singapore. Limited only to qualified professional investors, as defined in the Financial Investment Services and Capital Market Act and its subregulations. H, Japan by Janice Henderson Investors, Japan. Limited, regulated by Financial Services Agency and registered as a financial instruments firm conducting investment management business, investment advisory and agency business and type 2 financial instruments business. I, Australia and New Zealand by Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Limited, ABN 47, 124, 279, 518, 
and its related bodies corporate including Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Institutional Funds Management Limited, ABN 16, 165, 119, 531, AFSL 4, 4, 4, 2, 6, 6, and Janice Henderson Investors, Australia, Funds Management Limited, ABN 43, 164, 177, 244, AFSL 4, 4, 4, 2, 6, 8. J. The Middle East by Janice Henderson Investors International Limited, regulated by the Dubai Financial Services Authority as a representative office. No transactions will be concluded in the Middle East and any inquiries should be made to Janice Henderson. We may record telephone calls for our mutual protection, to improve customer service and for regulatory record-keeping purposes. Outside of the US, Australia, Singapore, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Europe, and UK, for use only by institutional, professional, qualified and sophisticated investors, qualified distributors, wholesale investors and wholesale clients is defined by the applicable jurisdiction. Not for public viewing or distribution. Marketing communication. Janice Henderson, Knowledge Shared, and Knowledge Labs, are trademarks of Janice Henderson Group PLC or one of its subsidiaries. Copyright Janice Henderson Group PLC. C042243314. 123023 TL.